I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It all started in the spring of 2020, just after the pandemic struck. Lamish Hamilton was at his home in Vancouver reading the news. And uh, I read a very small mention about a play uh, that was being undertaken by a theater company in Terrace, B.C. And it was, uh, it had a First Nations theme. And it was set to tour cities in B.C. that had residential schools in them. The play was called Bunk Number no. 7. And the article mainly described how its tour had been canceled, sidelined by the pandemic. The play was written by a uh, former Indigenous MLA for the former writing of Atlan. His name was Larry Ganu. He was Nishka from the uh, village of Gitluck Damocks, one of four Nishka villages in northern BC. But in his youth, he attended the residential school in uh, Edmonton. And that residential school was where bunk number seven was set. In the next few weeks, Wamish put in a call to the theater company, talked to the manager, got his hands on a copy of the script. And when I delved further into the play, I found that it was about an incident that happened at the Edmonton Indian Residential School of a nature that I had not heard before. An incident that Larry lived through when he was a kid. And not just Larry, but most of the 147 students at the school. This moment of rebellion. And it fascinated me that I'd not heard of something like that happening before. I'd heard of individual acts of uh, defiance on the part of some students in other residential schools, but not one that involved so many students. And uh, I couldn't help but think, wish really, that something like this had happened at the residential school my parents went to. My mother and my father were in a residential school, the Alberni Indian Residential School specifically, and their siblings, both of them, their siblings went. And my grandparents went, but my mother never spoke of it. But listening to the accounts of survivors, reading this play, I can only imagine what she likely lived through. Living under such oppressive conditions, almost completely oppressive, really. You wish something could have happened. You wish there would have been a break, a schism, uh, an all-out act of defiance. And in this instance, there was. I'm A.C. Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. There are not a lot of triumphant stories about residential schools, for obvious reasons. But this is one. It was uplifting. It was sad. Profoundly sad. At the same time, to think these were just children. This is the true story of a group of kids who, under horrible conditions and at enormous risk to themselves, reached a breaking point at the Edmonton Residential School in 1961 and decided to push back. At this particular time, in this particular place, the pin got pulled and boom. 
Larry Ganu isn't around to talk about what happened. He died in 2005. But Wamish has the blessing of Ganu's only grandchild to share this story. I thought it important to tell this story now because I'd not heard of this happening before. I wanted the audience, particularly Indigenous people, particularly residential school survivors, to hear this because it is such a departure from the narrative about residential schools. Among the many emotions that I felt reading the play and in speaking and listening to survivors, I wanted people to hear them because it's their story to tell. Heads up, there are some accounts of sexual abuse in this documentary. If that is something that you are not prepared to hear, you might want to skip this one. All right. CBC journalist Wamish Hamilton will take it from here. The Edmonton Indian Residential School, which was near St. Albert, was operated by the United Church of Canada from the 1920s to the late 1960s. Someone once described it as looking like a prison. It was uh, like a stark, large building made of cinder. It had a lifeless color to it. It was uh, cold and sterile looking inside. Everything was hard. There were no soft chairs or anything like that. There was just hard desks, hard chairs, hard cinder walls, hard. The Edmonton Indian Residential School was populated by uh, local Indigenous people, but a large chunk of the student body came from northern BC. There were Indigenous children from Haida Gwaii, uh, Nishka, Simshian, Gitsan, Heisla, Bella Bella, Heltsuk, Indigenous kids from all over those northern BC communities between the ages of five or six to 16, 17. A lot of them lived in uh, remote communities, so a boat would go and wrestle these kids out from the villages, herd them onto a boat, bring them to, in many instances, Prince Rupert, where there was a train station, and herd them onto a train. And the train would depart and end up in Edmonton three days later. I spoke to three former students, Helen Johnson. My name is Helen Campbell Johnson. My real name was Mingadden Wehayetsk. I'm from Port Simpson, B.C., which is now called Lachua Lambs. I've been in the residential school in Edmonton, Alberta for for three years and uh, Ellert Bay for three years, so a total of six years away. I was 14, 14 years old. I spoke to Gary Patsy. I'm from Wilkes-Tawamuch, this next to the family for Kaliakskikson. I attended the Edmonton Indian Residential School from 1952 to 1965. I was six years old. And I also spoke to Ed Wright. I'm from the Gilatam Expand in New Iantia, British Columbia. I was a residential school student for six years in Edmonton. I was 14. The agents from Indian Affairs came and took me out 
and they put me on a ship from here to Prince Rupert and then from there they put me on a train where there's a whole bunch of children that were already taken. The train was full of children. We arrived at this place. This is Gary. I remember the smell of the station and the bright lights in the station and we were waiting and then put on the train. I remember looking at the window and I remember my older siblings are waving at my mom and I saw my mom crying and away we went. Two and a half days we were traveling. We got into Edmonton. A bus came and picked us all up. We were trying to figure out, okay, now what's where are we going? What are they going to do with us? I remember going through the city, the bright lights, the noise, the smell. I didn't know why we were there. I think I was a little scared. I started crying. I wanted to see my older brothers. I didn't know what was happening. I don't know where my mom and dad were. I don't know why we were separated. So they drove to St. Albert Residential School, long ways out from Edmonton, the city. And we all got off, and I looked at the uh, building, walked inside the building. It was so quiet, you can see like it was more like a haunted place. And just hard, shiny floors and lots of stairs. It's all brand new to me. And the smell of these white people and the body odor. I never experienced that before. And I knew what they were going to do with us because it's similar to where I just came from, Alert Bay. My number in Ellert Bay was 134. And when I got into Edmonton, my number was 57. They didn't call us by name. They call us by number. The students I spoke to described the daily routine. Getting up really early. We'd get up about 5 o'clock in the morning. And they were woken up by the sound of a bell. The bell would ring and then we'd all line up. Like a hallway bell in a school. It would ring again, they had to get dressed. Ring again, they had to make their bed. They had to line up after they made their beds. We'd go downstairs, help in the kitchen, getting the food ready for the whole school's members that are there. And the bell would ring, and we all march into the dining room. And... Lining up like little guinea pigs and giving cod liver oil. I tried to throw it up, but then they gave me some more. They would sit down and they would eat uh, the meager breakfast that they were given. Mush, slice of bread. Lumpy porridge, of course. And then we take our aprons off and then run and get your stuff you need for school. And the bell would ring, we'd line up again, the bell would ring, we'd go into class. And you had to be there by a certain time because the bell would ring again. Then the bell would ring again when your class was over and you'd go to the next class. And the bell would ring and then we'd have lunch. The bell would ring, line up, bell would ring, go to class in the afternoon. Bell would ring, we're done. Bell would ring and uh, have supper. 
And then the bell would ring again. Bell would ring, and uh, time for bed, maybe about 7, 7.30. Change into her pajamas and, and lock the door. Sleep time. And then we'd start all over again. Every single day. All described uh, being uh, physically abused in the terms of uh, punishment for speaking a word in their language. I used to speak Samara when I was young. It's the only thing I know. But then going to school, we couldn't speak it. Otherwise, we'd get strapped. Any one of a number of cultural infractions, such as that you'd be punished for. I lost my culture, my traditions, my values and my beliefs. All the teachings that my father and my mother and my grandmothers taught us. It was gone. Gary recalled his greatest fear was at night in the little kids' dormitory because it was near the staff quarters. The lights would go out in this dormitory where there were just rows of beds of kids, boys. All of us were in fear, and we all listened for the latch by the dorm. We knew that the white guy was coming for one of us. And we all kind of closed our eyes really tight and put our heads under the blankets, hoping that this white guy won't pick us. And you could hear those shoes walking up and down the aisle of the beds. And his fear would heighten when the shoes would stop walking and just stand there. The boys all knew that some boy was getting picked to be brought back to the staff's quarters and molested, sexually assaulted. And his fear came to life, he said, when one night the shoes stopped at his bed and he was taken. How old were you? Oh, it started maybe when I was about seven, eight years old. Did it go on the whole time you were there? Not all the time, but it was quite quite frequent. So these predators, supervisor, white people, they what they did was they picked and choose. Oh, that is terrible. This is Ed, one of the older boys. And these were dorm one and dorm two uh, kids, and some of the kids were five years old that were there. There were three dormitories. The little boys' dormitory was on the ground floor. Middle school boys were in the middle, and the seniors were up top. Gary, when he lived there, when he first started living there, was in the little kids' dormitory on the ground level floor near the staff quarters. And Ed would have been on the third level with the seniors? I was, uh, I guess, in a way, lucky to be stuck in the top dorm, the third dorm, in the boys' side. That he had no business doing what he was doing and touching and abusing young boys. Do you recall his name? Ludford. James Ludford. The one most often accused of the sexual assaults. He was either the principal 
or an assistant to the principal. He was also a minister, a chaplain. He had favorite uh, boys that he liked to haul away towards his living quarters that were separate from the dorms. And everybody knew he was up to something, and uh, they started turning him in. And Some of the boys, Ed, for instance, remembered coming back to the school on a school bus, and they saw Ludford being taken away. When the RCMP were leading him out into the police vehicles to take him away, you know, we actually got to see him being taken away, head down. Oh, everybody was cheering. This is Gary. And we're happy that he was gone, but there are others that were predators as well. And they just like that on both sides, the girls' side and the boys' side. One of the women staff there tried to molest me, and I got into a big fight with her. And I got sent to the office, and I got a big strap, 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 strap for beating her up as he started it. Nobody believed us. Nobody. The official account about what happened to James Ludford is contained within an appendix to the Truth and Reconciliation Final Report. And it notes that he was charged with gross indecency involving children at the Edmonton Indian Residential School. And he was... uh, assigned probation. He had to seek therapy at a mental hospital. And he was forbidden to participate in activities with individuals under the age of 21. But afterward, he was sent to two different locations in Ontario where he continued to minister to Indigenous people. There was a set of common complaints. One of them, probably the the chief one, was that they starved. There was never enough food, at least for the students. Breakfast consisted of like a lumpy porridge. Other meals throughout the day would consist of like one egg and one carrot. Uh, There was no drink. There was no dessert. There was no rice or potatoes or vegetables or... The things we take for granted for a full meal today, there was none of that. Helen said that the effect that uh, having such little food and what food they had was of like zero nutritional value, that it had uh, really hard effects on her. The pain, I used to get real bad pangs in my stomach. It didn't feel full. For me, I was getting real bad headaches, migraine headaches. I lost a lot of weight. I became more angrier. I was getting cranky because I was hungry. Fatigue, crankiness, those two things made the very little learning that was going on at the school even more of a challenge, if not impossible. And it was all the time all throughout the day, every day. But breakfast, lunch, and supper, their meals were supplemented by canned spork. Canned spork was a cheap 
pork product, mass-produced and put in cans, metal cans. And that's what the students were expected to eat three times a day. What happened was one of the residential schools down in southern Alberta had a huge amount of canned goods, pork. For some reason, they decided they would ship it up to Edmonton. So therefore, we got to be the group that had to eat that. And uh, we had it for breakfast, we had it for lunch, we had it for dinner. We'd eat pork, pork, pork every day. Tons of pork. You got to get a taste <laughs> of it to, to be able to know what it's like. Uh, we knew that there were dollars that were available to feed us properly. The kind of food that we were being served of uh, pork every day, three times a day, and so on. You know there's something wrong with that. One of the other survivors I spoke to that didn't share his story for this, he described it as being barely better than dog food. It just added another layer of suffering on top of the suffering they were already enduring. It's bad enough being ripped away from home or being made to go to a school. And it's worse to be made not to speak your language, to practice any form of culture or tradition let alone language under threat of punishment. Worse is to take away the foods you had, like they're the last little bit of tangible pieces of home you'd have. I have lots of memories for the days when I was younger and we used to go camping. And every time we went camping to a different area, we would uh, harvest our food. Like out in Dundas Island, we used to um, pick seaweed. We'd get halibut, spring salmon, crabs, sea prunes, abalone, all, all our seafood. And we'd move from different places, like in May, June, we, we come back home to, to do our fish. We jar our salmon. We smoke it. Now, October, we'd move to uh, Pearl Harbor and we'd smoke uh, coho. Go hunting for ducks, mallards, geese, deer, bear. And then from there, we'd go to to the Nass River, to uh, Red Bluff. And then we'd go seal hunting or sea lion hunting. We'd catch that and we would preserve it. And uh, we'd dry them, bottle them. We did everything. So the whole four seasons, we just kept on going. And for me, I lost all that when I was taken out of here to go to residential school. You know, Helen had her reason 
for for doing what she did, for starting this. Gary had his reason for getting involved, but at this particular time, in this particular place, the pin got pulled, and boom. Casey here. Coming up, a then-teenage Helen Johnson is about to let fly. We'll be right back. Sit tight. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just... I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Helen worked and spent time in the uh, cafeteria helping prepare food and serving it to the kids. But she also spent time helping prepare food for the staff. And there was a marked contrast between what the staff ate and what the kids ate. The kids ate uh, meagerly. Uh, The staff's meals were quite different. Uh, Daily, Helen would see and help prepare meals for them. And they had veritable feasts of uh, take your pick of meat, chicken, fish, choice cuts of beef, vegetables, fruit, desserts. I started the riot That's what it is. I started a riot. A riot. A riot. It was a Saturday, Helen said, and her and her best friend were working in the kitchen. And uh, they found themselves by themselves. The staff member who was in charge of them had uh, left them alone and gone to her room. I told my friend, I said, well, we got to do something about this Supervisors are eating steak, pork chops, beef, with all the trimmings on the table. And here we were downstairs in the dining room, starving, and just looking at all the food that they were eating compared to what we were eating. It really made me upset, disgusted, frustrated, and angry. So I told my friend, I said, well, I'm going to do something here. I need to make a statement of some kind. So we we cleaned up, got everything done. And then I went and I took big cases of jam, butter, lard, potatoes, and whatever I could find, apples and oranges, cases and cases of pork, start throwing them out. We packed all those out and started throwing them against the, the wall of the school. That was happening on the girls' side. The boys saw what we were doing. I remember this ruckus coming up the hallway on the other side. This is Gary. And then we broke rank. We, we all left our desk to find what it was. And the girls were all hollering. And uh, we took it up, too. And we're hollering. They were happy. A lot of them were laughing. A lot of them were were hollering like, Yahoo! Way to go, Helen! 
saying all kinds of uh, comments. You know, you're strong, Helen, just keep going. Kids started gathering. And then more kids, and then more kids, and then more kids. This is Ed. People started screaming that, that we didn't want that pork anymore, demanding that he change the food. And from there, everything just went crazy. Just people disrupting, taking hoses out, everything. And pretty soon, one of the boys went to get a fire hose and turn it on. And the supervisor was trying to control us, you know, and then the girls are on one side, the boys are on the other side, and we're coming closer and closer to the middle part where the entrance was, where the staff room and uh, office was. And they start spraying the supervisor. The students from the girls' side and the boys' side converged in the middle of the hallway where the principal's office was, almost spontaneously. There would have been anywhere between 100 and 200 kids, anywhere from ages 5 to 6 all the way to 17, both boys and girls. Uh, people sprayed water in the hallways. The staff were sort of standing with the, the principal and tried to assist them. But uh, that is what all they could do. There was a mob of kids facing down the staff, including the principal. And more kids came and more kids came. There was yelling, there was screaming, there was cheering, there was anger. The staff weren't intimidating them and they weren't getting them to go back to their rooms, but that's what they were trying to do. And Ed, he was standing somewhere near the principal. The principal was hit with a large medicine ball. Somebody threw at him. A medicine ball that's used in PE, gym, went flying by him and hit the principal in the head. For an old man, that was quite a blow. He should have backed away instead of trying to step up in front of everything. That was the match that went into the gas, and it was a free-for-all after that. The staff realized they couldn't control the kids anymore. They lost control, yes. Gary had said they saw fear in staff's eyes, and they chased them. The kids chased them. Some of the guys were spraying him with that, with that fire extinguisher. And we knew that they were scared of us, and they retreated, locked themselves behind the door, and then we took control of the building. Staff locked themselves in a room. They ran into a room and locked themselves in there and wouldn't come out. Me, I, I, felt, I felt like I had power. I felt I have, have the power that was taken from me. And uh, I felt good about it. I was happy I was doing what I was doing, making a statement of some kind. Yep, I felt real proud too. <laughs> and the kids ran rampant throughout the school. 
By this time, someone had gotten into the power room where the circuit breaker was, and they were turning the power off and on in the school. Different classes, in the hallway, the lights would go on, the lights would go off. We start trashing the, the dining room, throwing chairs, at, trying to break the windows, overturning tables. I think it was a, kind of like a victory for me, and a victory for a lot of us, that we're able to push back. Finally, we were able to, to get a little bit of revenge and start destroying property. Intuitively, I guess I knew I was harmed and I wanted to get back. I wanted some revenge. I wanted some flesh. And that is the one opportunity that I had. And I, I, I just went with the mob. I started the riot because I wanted our children to to be fed properly, to make a statement of some kind that our children are starving. They got into a pantry. We were always hungry, so we went to the pantry. There was this cabinet that was locked. And the only way to open it was to force it open. Kicked it to one of the boys that was known to be a good kicker through karate training. He kicked the door down and we started drinking the vanilla. Went into the freezer and brought out the ice cream and the party was on. And uh, one of the things they had that we always wanted to have was butter. From what I saw, the girls were really happy. Standing there eating bread, eating apples and oranges whatever they can get a hold of. She made sure that the little kids got theirs first. And she told them, go take this and go go take it somewhere private and eat it before it gets taken away, before the staff come. Just take it and eat it, gobble it down. Did you have an end game in mind when it started? No, no, I didn't. I didn't even know how it was going to end. Tell you the truth, I don't know. The incident lasted anywhere from four to six hours. Uh, They had complete control. The staff was locked themselves in a room. They were getting access to the food that they'd been denied. No one was telling them what to do. The dreaded bells weren't going off. It's like a resistance movement. They fought for and won their freedom for a few hours, knowing that the police would come and put it down. The kids had an idea that this would end at some point. And this is the point, I think, when they became organized. Because one of the things they did was that they rounded up and they grabbed every box of spork they could put their hands on. And they ran it out to the road that led into the school, and they built a barricade. Here's Edmund. We knew that the police were coming, so therefore uh, people were concentrating on filling the driveway between the edges, filling it with cases and cases of pork so that the police couldn't come onto the grounds. There was a mountain of boxes of spork. 
that stretched the width of the road and part of the length. Cases of pork blocked the road, trying to keep the RCMP out. And uh, the police cars arrived at the school, and they couldn't pass the, the barricade, the spork barricade. So they had to get out of their cars, and they had dogs. This is Gary. They let the dog loose, and the dogs were just sniffing around. And we, we all got scared. Me? I was just petrified. They reminded me of the time I was taken away. That's why I, was, I could feel the dog biting me already. <laughs> when they did finally come, they had to climb over the uh, cases of pork to uh, take control of the school. They climbed over these boxes of pork. They got onto the other side. They managed to get their way into the school. They let the dogs loose, and all the dogs did was sniff around. Pretty well, the police asked everybody to settle down and move back into their own areas. Generally, that's what happened. And with that, the incident was over. We had to pack all the boxes back in on the road, back into the kitchen. And I think most of the, the girls on my side were happy in a way, but they're sort of upset in a way because now we're in trouble because of me. I think they lost hope there, too, when the cops came. They were happy for a while. Their spirits were up. But then when the cops came, their spirit was down again into depression, stress, you know. Because that's where I was. We all had to assemble and we were told to go to bed, and we did. I felt um, like I was locked up again. Locked up. Nowhere to go. But to face the consequences, and I did it. And that's when the punishment started. I was strapped on the hands many times. My hands were really swollen. My fingers were really fat because my hands were all swollen up because of the straps. And when that, when the principal came and told me, he said, you know, you're on the train here tonight going back to Prince Rupert. I could feel my heart just pounding with happiness. I'm finally getting out. I'm finally getting out of here. The riot served its purpose, I think. The food was changed. There were quite some changes in the menu. Spork was hauled away to another area. And uh, we got some new supplies of food and uh, a bit of budget for it. And I think by having that ride and changing the menu that we had, I think was quite accomplished. So I got on the on the car, and they took me to the train. I sat on the train. I was just happy to hear it leaving. And she took the train ride home. But I had nothing to eat. Starved. For three days and two nights, I think it was. Because they didn't give her any money for 
Yeah. Just those being petty punishment. This is to a kid. It got into Prince Rupert then. Me and my little bag, my suitcase, that's all I had. Got off the train and I was thinking, oh no, where am I going now? I've never been ever let go. Now I have freedom. What do I do with it? She didn't know anybody. There was no one there to meet her. She lived just across the water at uh, Luckwell And she met a very kindly gentleman who was on the council then, who remembered her. She'd been gone for six years. I saw this guy coming up. He was walking towards me. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said, Are you Johnny? He said, yeah. He looked at me and he said, is that you, girly? Helen, is that you? I said, yeah, it's me. So we both hugged these others and I just cried because I didn't know how to get back to Port Simpson at that time. He, he offered me a ride on his little boat. So I set out on the deck all the way home. It took us four hours to get home, but that was okay. And it was a real nice day. Sun was out. I was thinking about my parents. I was thinking about, you know, all the camping places that we were taught how to, to do our harvesting and all that. I felt calm. I really felt relieved. I was stress-free. I'm finally going home. You got home. Yes. Did you feel at home? No, I still don't. Why is that? I feel like I don't belong here. I feel like I'm trying to fit in. It's like a peg trying to fit into a round hole. Her mother and father were dead. She didn't know anybody. Nobody knew her. She didn't remember the language. And she didn't know where she belonged. And it's still the same today. None of us residential school students were ever... Welcome home. Well, now I know that the the whole 13 years I spent there was was trauma. And Canada premeditated to kill us, to kill the Indian and me. Gary had endured years of sexual abuse. Gary is Gitsan, and he lives in Hazleton. He used his own people's healing methods, his own people's medicine, to come to terms with it, and then to deal with it. I transformed my trauma. I'm I'm at peace now. He works with other survivors in helping them through their ordeal, their healing journey. Indian Day School survivors and resident school survivors murdered missing women. 
60 scoop, they come in here and I help them. Ed left the school and he became a band manager with the village of Gitluck Damics. But he went on to become, uh, ultimately, one of the chief people involved in the financial portion of the Nishka Treaty, Canada's first modern-day treaty, with an Indigenous group in BC. Through some part of law, you can only own a place if you've discovered it, if you've conquered it, or you've negotiated a treaty with the original inhabitants there. So when settlers first came to these shores, no, it wasn't discovered. There were people living here. Uh, there was never any war or conflict, so that's out. So you you got to negotiate a treaty with them. And that never happened until Nishka. What accomplishment are you most proud of? Resolving the dispute on land and being able to complete Nishka final agreement, the Nishka Treaty. You know, Helen, after she left the school, Helen thought she was free, but she still feels alienated, distant, far away. And that's what I've often referred to as the invisible hand of the school. Every day, it'll be drummed into her by some staff member. You're going to amount to nothing. You'll never be anything. And she said that turned her because she sought and fought and eventually earned her way into school, got a proper education that she didn't get in residential school. She got into university and she became a social worker. And I've proven to myself that what they told me in residential school that I wasn't going to amount to anything, now I am somebody. I've got a degree in social work. Here, I'm, I'm working now with a, a, an agency doing our genealogy for all the children. And they feel good about that, knowing that there's somebody there to help them to come home. In history, there are people who dared to resist. Mm-hmm. They dared to stand up for their rights. That's right. Do you feel like one of those people? Yes. I, I'm still like that today. Going to residential school really broke the, the lineage here. They, they broke everything we had. I was broken. But at this point now in my life, I still feel rejected, but I know where I belong to because I did research on myself for years, over 50 years now, and finally realized that I am somebody. I'm a matriarch of the Gispachlots tribe, the Eagle Crest, House of Gichan. Today, when you look back on it, how do you feel about the riot? And what does the riot mean to you? Freedom. The riot that happened 
I felt good about it. I felt proud. And I feel most of the students feel a lot better knowing that there is somebody there fighting for them. And that's what I'm doing. I'm still at it today. Helen Johnson, Gary Patsy, and Ed Wright. That doc was produced by Wamish Hamilton, Jody Martinson, and Allison Cook. There is a national residential school survivor support line for former students and anyone who needs help in connection with residential schools. Their number is 1-866-925-4419. The effects of residential school are ongoing. And one of the areas that Wamish has noticed their continued impact is around food. I've known a few survivors that um, they spare no expense with food. They've had very rich households in food, especially traditional food. Food is always at hand uh, because they remembered starving. And uh, they didn't want to burden their families with that feeling. And it was a way of overcompensating from the conditions they grew up in with little to no food. Others, a lot of them had uh, severe health problems when they got older. I remember one man saying he was convinced that his growth was stunted because he had been receiving such little nutritional value as a residential school student, and he had uh, problems as a diabetic. He had several internal problems stemming from the time when he, he starved. Part of colonization involved uh, displacement of lands, and not just lands, displacement of resources and access to traditional foods. So just suddenly and abruptly, there was an introduction of foreign food to Indigenous people uh, that were very high in starch, low in vegetables, low in fruit. And uh, that would have side effects later, such as diabetes, such as obesity, such as high blood pressure, heart disease. The list kind of goes on. And that would ultimately affect the mortality rate. Today's episode of The Doc Project was inspired by the play Bunk Number 7 by residential school survivor and former BCMLA Larry Ganu. Larry passed away in 2005. His play was set to be mounted last year when the pandemic hit, sidelining the production and its planned tour across northern BC. But rehearsals are again underway, with a work-in-progress production planned for later this fall in Terrace, BC. In honor of that, we wanted to share a scene from Bunk Number 7 that stuck with Wamish. This is an excerpt from the play Bunk Number 7, and it involves a dream uh, that was had by the character Head, uh, where he dreamt of his mother. Essentially dreamt of home. Dreamt of a place away from the school, but not untouched by the school. It was good, that dream. At first, anyways. Mom was all dressed up real nice, like she used to on Sundays. And sober, too. Her hair was all shiny and so long and black, just like it was before. Before, before bad things started happening back home. Her voice was so soft. She said that she was going to take me away from here, too. And she said, Mike, do you want to go to that cafe down the road? 
and have some hamburgers with some real thick gravy, mashed potatoes and pie and ice cream. I was so excited. I said, yes, yes, mommy. She bent down and kissed me. She smelled so good. I reached for her hand and we started walking down the road towards town. I was not sure where we were, but it looked like I knew the place. It seemed so nice and safe. And then we walked and walked and it got darker and darker and I was getting tired. And I looked up and I asked her, when are we going to get there? She yanked my arm so hard. Don't be so whiny, she said. I looked up again and it wasn't my mom no more. Uh, They dreamt of home. Their thoughts were always of home. One of the things I'm mindful of when I interview residential school survivors is who you're listening to when they talk is the children inside them who went to the school. You're listening to that hurt kid. A lot of survivors I've spoken to uh, put up a front, a tough front, a hard front, or if they didn't have that kind of a front, a humor type of front. Uh, But I always imagine that in their private moments, probably on their bunks at night or someplace when they're alone, these are the things they thought of. They thought of home, they thought of their parents. The way your, your mother looks, the way your mother smells, the way her demeanor. But as we heard at the end of that play, at the end of that excerpt of that play, uh, it's not his mother anymore. The school being taken away, maybe herself, now her son being taken away, it changed her. Wamish Hamilton. Thanks to Crystal Gnu, Larry's granddaughter, for giving us permission to read from his play. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Sherry O'KK, Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.